we have awards in the Pioneer League, another schedule drop, and some new rules in leagues you wouldn't expect them from. All this and more on this week's episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. All right, we're back again. Episode number 193 of the Indie Ball Report podcast. I'm Nick. He's Will. We're both under the weather, but we're going to try and get you 30 minutes of quality content regardless of this. I was thinking, and I'm sure people listening could hear my voice at this point. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel like we do this like whenever like. I feel like we're like both sick around the same time usually. I don't know yeah. how that works, but it, it does work out that way. Yeah. It seems like we need more like vitamin C, you know? Yeah, true. You start pounding that orange juice more, but uh, I love orange juice. So, I know, yeah. I probably well, should do that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the best way to avoid this or start taking that emergency, you know, like that like ultra pack of vitamin C that they sell in the stores. Yeah. That. So. Yeah, so either way, I guess we might as well just get right into it so that way we can uh, make a point of hitting all the all the news that we have to hit and before one or both of us uh, die on recording, which will not stop me from releasing this episode unless, of course, I'm the one that died, seeing as I'm the only one with the <laughs> passwords needed. Uh, so I want that put out there. Hell, if I'm able to, I'll still find a way to try and get it uploaded. Last will and testament, you know the whole deal. So the show must go on. Exactly, exactly. And so with that show, we take it out west to the Pioneer League to open things up. Earlier this week, uh, they announced their end of year awards. Uh, that includes their All Star team and their individual awards. We'll go over the individual awards first, and then we will uh, shift and talk quickly about the All Star. Uh, lineup as well. There's other awards like batting champion, strikeout king, things like that. But those are just counting stat ones, which uh, have been known since the end of the season on account of there's been no more time to rack those up. So you could just go to the stat page and see that. And likewise, all of these awards are available on the Pioneer League site and in the show notes that will be on uh, our website, IndieBallReport.com. Uh, we'll open it up with the headliner uh, MVP. This is really no surprise to anyone that's listen to us talk about the Pioneer League or anyone that followed the Pioneer League for any sort of uh, period of time. Uh, Jason Newman uh, from the Missoula Paddleheads will take that one. Uh, over 100 RBIs. He hit over 369 this past season, uh, as well as having uh, 441 and 704 to complete the slash line. But the headliner stat is the single season Pioneer League record for home runs at 32. Of course, you know, the Pioneer League used to be a short season uh, league, so it kind of cut down the amount of time here. But 32 home runs in any independent league would put you up there towards the top of the uh, all-time single season records for home runs, certainly. So well-deserved on that front, no doubt. Um, pitcher of the year, and then we'll break to talk about those two are Elijah Gill from the Billings Mustangs, uh, 3.26 ERA in 85 and two thirds innings pitched of which 15 of his 16 appearances were as a starter. You could probably guess that from the innings. Uh, and he had 80 strikeouts there. He winds up walking away with the, uh, pitcher of the year mark in the pioneer league. So we will, uh, park it and talk about those two guys before we get on with the other three and other awards as well. Yeah, I mean, again, like this is, it's been pretty clear that this is a, uh, Jason Newman stand podcast. Mm. Um, he's just a stud, uh, for, for Missoula and just say, so, yeah. And you know, you bring, you bring up some good points about, you know, like Pioneer League records because it used to be a, uh, a short season league. So and I guess, you know, that loses some significance, but, uh, I mean, it shouldn't take away from the year that Newman had and Elijah Gill especially had a, had a great year with Billings and, and again, like, don't, uh, don't discount how difficult it is to pitch in the Pioneer League, not just because of any sort of talent or anything, just because of the atmospheres and the way, um, uh, in the way that just the ball flies. And so, I mean, when you have an ERA as a starting pitcher around, uh, like around like three, three and a half, that's really strong, uh, yeah. for, for, for the Pioneer League. So, uh, certainly I think both are, both are well deserved candidates and, you know, Jason Newman's numbers are just always more hilarious by the day. Absolutely. I mean, it, 
it doesn't really matter what league you're in. If you're hitting over 350 and you're putting up over 30 home runs, or you're going to have a fantastic season no matter what. Uh, as far as Elijah goes, again, at any league, having a, a 3-2 ERA is going to be pretty damn good. And everything else with it is just that much better. Uh, I don't really think it would be in any other league that you would say, okay, a 3-2 is probably like top of the line here. But like you mentioned, well, the the way the ballpark is, the way the atmosphere affects the ball, and a variety of other factors here, and knowing how the offense is just in the Pioneer League as a whole, makes the 3-2 in the Pioneer League a lot more uh, valuable, a lot more, uh, I guess, a lot more notable than it would be in, say, the Frontier League, where we saw a guy like Miguel Cienfuegas, who stayed around a 2 ERA the whole year. So, as that stands... It kind of tells me, okay, you can pitch in any league if you're able to do that here. So very worthwhile on both fronts there. I, I, I don't really have any complaints there. And both of them were tremendous factors in their team success. So, uh, on yeah, that. I think the, uh, I think the, you know, you bring up the guys who pitch well. Mm-hmm. I think you could even see guys who, you know, they pitch well in the Pioneer League. They can, it's just more of a, a more of a uh, check in the box and looking for other indie ball opportunities as well and potentially affiliated opportunities just because of how hard it is uh, how hard it is to pitch in that league absolutely on that note we will go to rookies of the year our rookie of the year rather and international player of the year as well as manager of the year uh, rookie of the year goes to nico popa from the grand junction rockies now grand junction jackalopes uh, he hit 406 uh, finishing off the stat, the slash line with the 449 and 526, six home runs over 80 RBIs as well. He played in all the games, all 94 games for Grand Junction this past year. Uh, International Player of the Year is from Ogden. That is Jesus Valdez, uh, 369 batting average, 433, 612, finishing off the slash line, 21 home runs, so an equally as impressive season as some of the other guys we've seen already pop up here. Manager of the Year is also from Grand Junction. Uh, that would be Bobby Jenks. He finishes with a 52 and 33 record. However, the first half was 26 and 22. Then he did a, a essentially a 180 and wound up winning 36 of the team's final 47 games in the second half, finishing with a plus 128 run differential. So a very impressive turnaround and even a, a solid first half, really, when you get down to it. But the second half there is really what's impressive. And obviously the team had some great success this year, winning a championship, uh, defeating Missoula in what was probably one of the larger upsets of the indie ball season. Uh, so very deserving on that front, very deserving on all the fronts uh, of, the, of these three guys. Yeah, I think in particular with the uh, with the Bobby Jenks um, award, I think that was that was really an easy decision. Just because, again, I mean, obviously won the championship and 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 that's huge. But just to to be honest with you, like to do that all as a as a first year manager, despite not having any really uh, legitimate coaching managerial experience before this, I mean, it's really impressive um, that he was able to uh, assemble a roster. Uh, in a pioneer league, still a new, a new indie ball league. And, you know, I mean, obviously Bobby Jenks is a, a, a big name um, as far as his playing career goes, but I mean, he's, he's a guy that, um, that started making a name for himself as a manager. I mean, he, he just did an unbelievable job. And of course, how can you take away from that, uh, from, for that championship series against Missoula? I mean, it's, it just really speaks to uh, how the way Jenks was able to capture that team, uh, this year and really get the most out of them. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. So I think very, very deserving uh, of the award as, as the others. He put up some pretty, uh, Valdez and, and Popa, who put up uh, some some crazy slash lines that you'll see like in this league. And so both of them deserving as well, but uh, just a great first year for uh, Bobby Jenks with the uh, Grand Junction, now Jackalopes, which I still love as the name. Yeah, I mean, it is a great name, and I mean, you bring up a lot of good points with Jenks having to do really above and beyond of a job as a first-year manager. Obviously, managing an indie ball is much different from managing in uh, in the affiliated leagues and for no other reason than you have to build your roster, and you have to replace guys on the fly, and you're doing a lot of jobs all at the same time, and you're working with a lot of... A lot more moving pieces, right? Like, 
there is some guidance from above on how you're supposed to play players, what your objectives are when you're managing a double A team, as opposed to when you're managing an independent league team where your goal is just to go out and to win games. So I definitely give them credit there. Plus the second half turnaround was extremely impressive as well. Uh, doing all that as a first year manager, as we said, is just that much more impressive. And I gotta say, when I look at some of the other guys, mainly in Pope and Valdez, Pope screams to me like a future, uh, Gastonia Honey Hunter, because his play style fits <laughs> yeah, into exactly. a T, you know, like not a lot of power, but he hits for average. He gets on base. He drives runs in. It, that just screams Honey Hunter baseball. If they're going to copy what they did this past year. And I mean, when you had that kind of success, there's no reason to not do that. Right. So certainly there. And then Valdez is a guy where I'm interested to see where he goes. Cause I mean, realistically, if you don't have a guy like, uh, like Jason Newman in this league, there's a case to be made that he's not just international player of the year, but player of the year, period. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that uh, both of those guys are probably going to have, uh, you, you would think are going to have opportunities at least at uh, one of the one of the three major indie leagues uh, as well, but you know, Frontier League, American Association, or Atlantic League, um, just because of the, you know, the seasons they had. And I think... You make a great point about uh, Popa playing like Honey Hunter baseball. I think he that'd be an, that'd be an interesting fit. But um, man, it's certainly a great year for for those guys, and of course with with, with Bobby Jinx as well. And I think that's why uh, I think a lot of managers like or some managers at least why well, some of them prefer you know managing an indie ball because you're able to have more of an impact on your team and uh, you're not just being played who's based on draft position and who got the biggest signing bonus. You know, like you're just you're just trying to win games, and you know, and you understand why. Uh, and I certainly an affiliated ball just because of the money and the the money attached to some of those guys and the investments that's made uh, in certain guys. But I'm um, sure it's it's a it's a definitely a great way to get uh, Jenks's coaching career underway. Absolutely. So on that note, we'll go to uh, the All Star team for the Pioneer League this past year. Uh, we'll just go in the order that they're listed in. There's going to be two starting pitchers and two relief pitchers as well. At first base from Missoula, Jason Newman. Not terribly surprising there. Second base from Rocky Mountain, Ulysses Cantu. One of the best names in this league. I got to be honest. I just love that name. And obviously he had a great season to back it up too. Uh, Jesus Valdez is going to be your shortstop from Ogden. Uh, we just explained why that would be the case. Cameron Thompson, third base, Missoula. Nick Gatewood, catcher from Missoula as well. If I'm not mistaken, he had some time with Gateway too. I don't know why. I know there was a Gateway, a Gatewood or, or something similar to that that played for the Grizzlies too. I don't know if it's the same guy or not. I'd have to look that up. Uh, any case, Josh Broughton, uh, from Ogden is going to take the first outfield spot. Second one is Nico Palpa uh, from Grand Junction, as you could probably guess. Uh, Lamar Sparks will be the final outfielder from Missoula as well. Dusty Strope uh, is the DH from Idaho Falls. Your two starting pitchers are Elijah Gill from Billings and Josh Agnew from Grand Junction. He just signed with, if I'm not mistaken, the Milwaukee Milkmen too. So he got a nice promotion there. Uh, and for his career, Sam Hellinger from Missoula is the first relief pitcher. And the second one is Bo Bonvillian uh, from the Billings Mustangs. Another fantastic name there. You mentioned some good names on this list as well. But, you know, certainly I, I, I probably haven't, you know, paid uh, as much uh, as close, close enough of attention to really have any sort of major qualms with uh, with this list and the all-star list at all. But you say the name Ulysses Cantu, and I think no, no way he has any relation to Jorge Cantu. Maybe I believe former former Marlins. I believe he may. I gotta look this up. Jorge. I wonder. Cantu. Uh, I'm gonna look it up real quick. Um, I don't think Jorge Cantu is old enough to have like a son that's playing professional baseball, though. Unless I mean, maybe, I, maybe I'm really old. I mean, he's forty. I mean, possibly. I'd I'd be surprised if he did, but it's possible. Yeah, I don't think there, I don't think there's a relation there. Unless it's, it could be like an uncle nephew type thing. Yeah, but possibly. I mean, uh, yeah, no, it, it really is. A, it really is a uh, fun name. And if there was a relation, that would be. Oh no, he is still playing. He is the Mexican League. Oh yeah, at age forty. Jesus, good for him, man. Yeah, 
he did not do well this year. So maybe his career is done now. But uh, yeah, he's still he's at least this past year still playing. Good for Jorge Cantu. That's really what I'm getting from this. And then Ali's legend, <laughs> Marlins legend. Uh, but there I am. Wow, this you know it's cool too when you look up Ulysses Cantu. Like the first thing that comes up is Nick Gardenwine strikes to uh, Ulysses Cantu from MLB.com. And I just like seeing two indie ball guys. That's like one of the first things that comes up when you search up an indie ball guy. I just, I don't know why I like that. That, that, why does that come up? I, I don't know. I guess it's just one of the first things that comes up. I mean, I can't imagine Ulysses Cantu is a very popular Google search. <laughs> no disrespect. Well, on the indie ball, from the indie ball report, it is. It's the main, it's our main Google search weekly thing. It's a weekly thing here. But uh, unless we have anything else to say about the Pioneer League, I guess we can keep it moving here to the Atlantic League, which obviously, if you listened to last week's episode, and if you haven't, I highly recommend going back and doing so. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the Atlantic League uh, with Ryan. Uh, we were talking mainly about how the schedule was supposed to come out last week, then it didn't come out, and then we weren't sure where this extra team was going to go because there's obviously a need for a 10th team with the genomes not coming back. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, yeah, we finally got our answer to all of those questions. So unless we have anything else to go with the Pioneer League, uh, we can move right to the Atlantic. Yeah, we can, I think we can go right to the Atlantic League. You're right, great. So Atlantic League schedule, uh, 126 games again. It will start uh, April 28th. It will run through September the 17th. The first half will end on June, or July rather, my mistake. The first half will end on July 7th, so that is April 4th, or April 28th through July 7th for the first half, and July 8th through September 17th for the second half there. Uh, we know who that 10th team will be. Uh, is going to be in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, they're going to replace the Wild Health Genomes that are officially done. Uh, that Frederick will slot right into their place in the South Division as well. Frederick, as some of you may be aware, is the site of a MLB Draft League team, and prior to that, an affiliated team for Baltimore. Uh, there's still going to be the Draft League team in Frederick. However, there will also be this Atlantic League team as well, the, the skew for their home and away games is a bit different. They have fewer home games, likely just because of the scheduling situation that's going to exist there with the extra draft league team. Uh, schedules made by the same people that make the uh, uh, affiliated minor league schedule as well, too. So that should help with some of the wonky scheduling that we saw last year. Hopefully that won't repeat again this year. Uh, uh, so uh, I've seen a lot of questioning about, has is Frederick going to be a permanent thing, or are they just going to be a one-and-done there's no real definitive there. I've seen some news articles and had some people talk to me about it being a permanent thing. And I think the kind of implication from one of the press releases was that it is permanent. However, that's far from 100% at this point in time. If it is permanent, they're going to need to find a 12th team. So because obviously Hagerstown is going to come in for 2024. Uh, so, Obviously, they're going to need to find a way to even off that schedule there. So it will be interesting to see how that gets sorted out. Uh, on that front, though, uh, any immediate reactions to the scheduling? Yeah, I think, um, I guess, as far as like the schedule itself, I guess, you know, it's a schedule release. But uh, I think the with the market of Frederick, uh, I'm intrigued. And not because I love the idea of like two teams uh, and, you know, I'm always intrigued with, you know, the, uh, with after what happened with Lexington last year. And obviously that experiment didn't go well for them. What makes Frederick think it's going to be different? Now it's slightly different because there's two, there's two teams and they're in two different leagues. Um, and, you know, one is certainly much better than the other. Uh, but I think that I was a big fan of when, like, those, when those mark, when at the time when those minor league markets started to get slashed and it became apparent that Frederick was not going to become affiliated. Frederick was really one of the markets I was hoping the Atlantic League would jump into. It's got a great location. It has good attendance. It has a ballpark, uh, that, that's solid. Um, 
And so I think as a market in and of itself, it's really strong. It's a really strong one. And if the Atlantic League can now, of course, if they want to make it a permanent one that opens up a whole new can of worms, could they possibly? I, I feel like I bring up Lowell all the time, but like, and with a possibility, despite the fact that there's been no murmurs of Lowell to the Atlantic League being close. But uh, I think that. I think that if Frederick were a permanent member, it would be really cool. And I think it's it's interesting to be in a situation with the league that you can have a, I guess, one-year trial run of sorts, unless the Frederick ownership is really under the impression that, hey, but I like that this is going to be just one just one year and that's it. But I feel like, I mean, correct me, I mean, you, can, you, you obviously feel free to disagree with me, Nick, yeah. but I feel like that if the ownership group had any, like, uh, Inclined, if they weren't using this as a trial run, and they really were just saying, "Nope, one, this is just one year thing, and then we're done." Like, how, why would they do it at all then? Like, what what reason would they have to do it if it was literally just a one year thing? I feel like that they have to be like, from their perspective, trying something, the trying something, and the Atlantic League is trying something, and at least like the ownership group, like you look at, like, all right, well, does the Atlantic League team outdraw the MLB Draft League team? I don't know what what you would at least the talent of the the talent quality is much different, but then you also have the argument of, well, do families going out really care? Um, And so I I think it's, it's a really fascinating case. And I just wonder um, if this is almost something that that the owners of the keys or the ownership group is just using as an experiment for one year to see if the Atlantic league is a viable, a viable option for them. Because if it really were just, Okay, it's just this is just going to be one year and it's done. I don't know what the uh, motivation for the keys would, or well, I say the keys, yeah. even though it's not technically going to be the name. But I, I don't know if what the uh, motivation for the Frederick ownership group would be if that were the case. Yeah, I think that's something that's uh, important to kind of distinguish here is that they are two different groups, and if I'm correct, and I'm going to check the press release real quick just to make sure that I'm right, is that it is different ownership groups, and that will certainly be two different teams. Oh, okay. The Atlantic League team will not be the the uh, called the keys. They'll have their own branding and everything separate here. Now, that being said, I don't think that's too much of a roadblock here. I would argue the only thing I would say here is that as we saw in you know Lexington this past year, What's on the field doesn't really matter so much. It's just people going out there. Now, granted, I suppose the the strong counter argument to it is, you know, Lexington's not necessarily a baseball town. It's a college town. So that's a strike against it. Now, is Frederick any different? I don't know. I don't know the baseball culture around it. I would say this is more or less, I think, filling some dates in there. I think it definitely has the potential to be a long-term team and a long-term solution here that being said uh no i must i i am mistaken here the ownership group here of uh let me get the name right attain sports and entertainment uh they do own the frederick keys as well as the bowie bay Sox, so they are familiar with that so in theory yeah they they could just kind of go all right we're leaving the draft league we're going to here <coughs> again i don't know if that makes sense from a financial perspective here Maybe, and this is just my thinking on it, is because there were some pieces going around where like the mayor of Frederick is still saying our goal is to get an affiliated team. And the argument would be, all right, if we get a new stadium in here and then we have this already existing professional team, then our worst case scenario is we just put an unaffiliated team in there or best case scenario, we show Major League Baseball, which is a partner of the Atlantic League, hey, look, we have this Atlantic League team. You see all our stats and information about it. We're still a very viable professional market. We've done well with everything we've been given so far. We deserve another chance. And so that could be part of it too, just more or less lining up so that way when your opportunity to become affiliated presents itself again, you're able to just lunge head forward and uh, take advantage of it. So I would say that could possibly be it too. Now, I don't really know if it makes a difference, again, like I was just kind of saying, whether they're affiliated, unaffiliated, or if they're a draft league team. I, I don't really think it matters all too much for, uh, for fans that are just kind of looking to go out and do something. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't really know. The one thing that I kind of get as a takeaway from this, though, 
is that the draft league's kind of like what we all thought it was, which is once the current commitments are up, they're going to kind of all go to a different league. It just doesn't really make much sense for it to exist, seeing as it's this kind of zombie uh, summer yeah. college semi-pro league. Total waste of time. Exactly. I think it's a total waste of time and space. That's just my idea. Exactly. That No one's really scouting at all, so it really doesn't help anyone uh, to be in that league. So I would probably say that, you know, that's something to watch out for. That's something to keep our eye on to see what happens with it going forward and what's it going to do moving forward. I think that's the bigger thing to take away from this is that should, you know, Frederick go long-term, go pro, should the, the experience be good for Frederick, undoubtedly they're going to be willing to talk to some of the other markets in that draft league. And if you recruit one more over, you're at 12 for next year. You mean 2024. You're all set there. I don't know how long the draft league commitments are for, but all of a sudden, if two jump ship, you see your numbers. If you start doing the math out and it works out to be about the same, there's an argument to be had that you just say, yeah, let's just go pro on it. Now, of course, you know, I imagine if we're looking just dollars and cents, doing the weird semi-pro thing is going to be vastly more profitable because you're not paying players and you're not paying them nearly as much as you would be after the draft right so <clears throat> that seems to be one thing that would hold up the thing falling apart but as far as it pertains to the Atlantic League as a whole I do think it's a very interesting setup I do like the placement of Frederick I wish they could be in the same division as Southern Maryland I think that would work out a lot better and I also think that when we get to 12 we really do need to consider doing four or three, four-team divisions. I think that is probably the right way to go about doing this and make it so that way we can have these Maryland teams all together in the same division, having that geographical rivalry. I think that's just the right way to go about doing it. And hopefully, you know, that additional team that will be needed to get us back to an even number of teams will be in that greater Maryland region, maybe Northern Virginia, Delaware, uh, South Jersey even perhaps, so that way we can go ahead and lump those teams together, put the two Pennsylvania teams, the two New York teams, and then put all the Southern teams together. It just seems like it makes the most sense to do it that way. So I, again, as far as everything else goes, I mean, the schedule is the schedule, like you said, well, the half system is the half system. We went over that before. 126 games is a good number. That's all fine and good. What Frederick does in the future is really the big news here. And if I had to guess, it's probably 60, 40 long term, but I, I don't know that for certain yet, and I'll be very interested to see how it does pan out. Yeah, just because I mean, yeah, I think it would I think it would be a really strong idea for a market long term if that if that can happen. But I don't know. The two team setup is so unique, and unfortunately, the time it's been tried, it didn't really work. So, uh, but I mean, even though it's slightly different this time, it'll it'll be interesting to see. It's just. I really hope it works out because I, I think Frederick could be a really good long-term market for the Atlantic League if they if they could figure a way to, to pull that out for sure. It certainly could. And so on that note, we'll go to our last bit of news here today. I tweeted about it earlier while Twitter's still a thing. I was able to tweet about it and the first announcement came and then the second announcement came and it seemed like uh, it looked like, okay, we're, obviously you both had it planned for something else and part of me wants to start to believe that teams are scheduling like Friday news dumps around us. I know that's not the case, but I like to believe it. It makes me feel better about myself. So uh, both of these announcements are the same. It's just the American Association came out and then the Frontier League came out a couple hours later. So both are adding a pitch clock. The rules are slightly different. We'll go over them both. Uh, I'll go over the American Association. We'll stop, talk about it. Then we'll go uh, Frontier League, stop and talk about it. And uh, yeah, then we'll go from there. Uh, American Association, uh, their uh, pitch clock is going to be uh, 15 seconds with the bases empty if there's a runner on. <coughs> If there's a runner on, it will be 20 seconds. Uh, the motion, so a pitcher's windup must start before the clock expires. If they fail to do so, it will be recorded as an automatic ball. Uh, batters must be in the box eight seconds, uh, or before eight seconds hits on the clock. So if the clock hits 
seven seconds or later and the batter is not ready, they're not in the box, uh, it will be counted as an automatic strike. Uh, so with that said, uh, there will be a maximum of 30 seconds between batters. Uh, this is where it gets kind of controversial because up to this point, I think obviously you have some people that have thoughts on there being a pitch clock in general, but it's pretty mundane. Uh, this is where it gets a little controversial in that there is a pickoff limit, uh, and that limit is two per at-bat. Uh, if a runner advances, then it will reset. Uh, the penalty uh, for exceeding your two pickoff attempt will be the base runners advance one base. Now, I will say this much. You are allowed to attempt uh, a third pickoff if you'd like, but if it is unsuccessful, then you will be penalized and the runners will automatically advance. Uh, so... Uh, media thought on that, at least for me, and I'm sure Will, you'll agree on some level on this, uh, is that there's going to be an uptick in stolen bases and that people are going to be making a big deal out of this when there's really no reason to. So I just, uh, just like the baseball, like, uh, the baseball fan to me, I'm not a fan of the pickoff, mm. I, the whole pickoff rule. Um, just because, and not that, like, I don't, like, as I understand, like, the reason behind it, um, and I get it, but I think that, uh, my issue it, more with it is that it, it kind of just impacts the game in the way, like, I don't like when it impacts, like, the actual gameplay, and I, I honestly don't think that kickoffs are really what's slowing the game down at a massive rate, um, and I don't think it's going to have a, uh, I don't think it's going to have like really that big of an impact on the time of game. I don't think there's really that, mu- that much evidence to support it. So I'm not a huge fan of the pickoff uh, thing. I don't think it's just going to become the wild, wild west and bedlam and whatever. Uh, but I'm not a fan of it in general. However, I think. I am a huge, 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 huge proponent of pitch clocks. I think this is awesome. And I think, and by the way, yeah. any anyone from the Atlantic League is listening, follow suit. Do it. Please. I was at, I was probably at, um, I think two, like two or three Atlantic League games this year, and all of them went over three and a half hours. Please. And nobody stays the whole game. And I mean, people don't really stay the whole game anyway, like no matter what, like even in minor league baseball and whatnot. But like, it's, I mean, it was crazy. Like every ballpark was empty by the end of the game because it was just taking too long. And so I think the pitch clocks are going to become the, the new way uh, in any professional base. And honestly, it might even translate to, to college at some point because, um, because to be honest with you, like it is proven that it works. And I think there's going to come a point where it's just going to become so universal. And, uh, and I'm, I'm here for it. I think that it's better for the game. I think there's more action involved, uh, and it, it promotes more action, and it keeps the fans engaged because the reality is, and I'm, and I'm telling you because there's plenty of evidence to support it, that there are very, very few people that are going to stay in the ballpark for a three-and-a-half-hour or a three-hour, three 45-minute game. So, uh, And I know and I know, I know that what you're probably going to say next, Nick, and bring up the point that, well, this is the American Association is the whole point of, like, their whole brand is, oh, well, we're, we're playing the game of baseball the way it was meant to be played. I get it. And like, I understand it's like, this is not really sort of consistent with that. However, I do think it's better for the game. I do think it is more entertaining. And I think that, uh, and I think long term, especially when you're looking at your market and families and stuff who are not staying three and a half hours, nobody's saying three and a half hours. It is better for business to have a a product that is around two and a half hours, three hours, especially when it is proven that the pitch clock works and do significantly slowing down the game. So I'm a huge, huge fan of it. I see. Normally I would make that point, but I feel like once they put the the runner on second, they kind of seeded that ground. So like it makes sense. I guess it's fair. Yeah. And more so, I mean, I feel like everyone's going to do it. Roamer on the streets are... The Atlantic League's going to be adding one, too. I think that's just more or less a matter of getting all their ducks in a row before they do that. Uh, but that said, once Major League Baseball put it in, everybody was going to put some form or another of a pitch clock in. I mean, that was just a matter of time, uh, especially in the case of independent leagues, where your goal is to move guys from independent leagues to 
uh, affiliated minor leagues or major league baseball, right? So, uh, once that becomes the case, you know, we, you need to follow suit and get cute with the times, whether you like it or not. Uh, that being said, uh, I also agree. I like the pitch clock. I don't think it's nearly as big of a deal as some people are going to be making it out to be. I think you're going to see a lot of people, um, taking one or two instances early in the year and blowing it way out of proportion. And that's why when we get to the Frontier League rules, they do something that the American League or American Association rather uh, does not do. And I think is this tremendous idea. But uh, we'll get to that in a minute. I think once we get through those couple of incidents through May and by the time we get to June and eventually July, this will become a non-issue. And as long as it's not an issue, once we get to the playoffs in September, it will become business as usual. So I'm not against that at all. I think it's important to keep games no more than like, say, three hours, 15 minutes. I think that really needs to be kind of your upper level of it. Uh, just simply put, if your main goal is to get casual fans in, which is the vast majority of baseball fans, really, when you get down to it, they're not going to be sticking through it for that long. I mean, think of uh, when people just go to movies and they complain that they're, you know, two and a half two hours, 45 minutes long, and arguably, you're interested in seeing that movie, you went because you wanted to see that movie, and you knew what you were going to be getting when you went to see, or at least you had a rough idea of it, when you get to a baseball game, it really becomes like, okay, I know I'm seeing a baseball game, but I don't know what kind, I don't know how it's going to play out, I don't know a lot of the factors about it, so if you're going to be complaining about that, and you have people, you know, kind of complaining at the length of other events, and your competition are these other events, you need to keep kind of in line with it. Because while, yes, you're giving them a little bit more bang for your buck with more content, if it's boring and dull and slow content, no one wants that, right? So, and you get a lot of that kind of off time here. Now, that said, I don't know how necessary it is. I think it was probably okay before that, but I am certainly in favor of some sort of a clock like that. I think there's a lot of times where people are slowing the game down unnecessarily. And I understand there's a strategy element to it as well. There is that cat and mouse game. And I do appreciate that for what it is. But at a certain point, it's more annoying than it is strategy, right? So I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with the penalties and all that come along with it. That said, talking about the pickoff limit, I understand why that's there too, because otherwise... Instead of just stepping off the mound, you know, kind of digging at the bank of the mound, doing whatever you have to do to kind of milk the clock. Instead, you'll just give a couple of light tosses over, maybe like two or three times. Go ahead, walk around the mound once or twice before you get the ball back. Do it again, rinse and repeat. When you put an actual penalty for doing that kind of thing in, now it takes it off the table. That said, I wish the number would have been higher than two per at bat because now if you're a decent base runner, if as long as you're able to kind of draw a pitcher's attention enough to throw over once or twice, all of a sudden now you've almost given yourself free reign to steal second base because we know a lot of catchers just across baseball as a whole, but especially on this level, aren't the best defensive catcher. They don't have the best arm to throw guys out. And there's just a lot that can go wrong on that. So while I do think this does increase a lot of high-energy plays and does create more action, for lack of a better term, I do think you could have done a little bit better on the uh, pickoff limit. Right, and not only you know are the, are the base runners using the pickoff limit to their advantage, but they can also use the... Um, it can also use the pitch clock to their advantage, hmm. right? Because, I mean, you know, like, um, you know, as the clock's winding down, like, like in, like, four, three, two, and they take a look and come back, they're not thrown over, right? Hmm. So, uh, and it, it also impacts, like, what a what a uh, pitcher can do, like, that just more than pickoffs, uh, than that mechanisms to hold runners on, like long holds or, or um quick slide steps it's going to be really interesting to see uh, i guess how pitchers try and deal with this as well and i don't think increased action on the base paths is bad i, I think you make a good point though I, th- I wish it was more than two because the whole point is you don't want it to just be excessive and i don't think three in a bat and in a, in a bat is excessive personally mm-hmm. i i don't i don't think i don't think that's crazy especially with like a, a like an, an elite runner at first base now if you want to say like all right like after like four or something like you can't do more than three or something like yeah. that and then you force many all right fine but I, I do think i think two and i know that's the kind of like the general rule 
at this point, like what they've been doing in minor league baseball. So like I understand that that's kind of like the the grounds that have been established, and like they're not really going to totally go away from it. But um, but I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see how like base runners like how's as base dealers try and not only utilize like that like the number of pick offs, but use those use the pitch clock to their advantage. Mm, definitely, definitely there. So uh, for the sake of time, <coughs> we'll move to the Frontier League. They cover their role because it is a little bit different. So in the Frontier League, uh, they're only allowing 14 seconds with the bases empty. That's one second less than the American Association. And with runners on, only 18. That's two less than the American Association. So already a slight difference. Uh, and one of the key differences here is in the American Association, you just have to start your windup. You have to go into your pitching motion uh, and you'll be good. The clock won't matter. For the Frontier League, the ball must be delivered to home plate before the time expires. So their 18 or 14 seconds isn't a true 18 or 14 seconds. It is instead less than that because there is time for you to go through your windup, throw the ball, and have it reach home plate. So in reality, it's probably looking more like, what would you say, 12 and 16, more than 14 and 18, which might not sound like a huge difference, but it certainly will affect pitchers that have a little bit longer of a routine. So that's something to watch out for. Penalties will remain the same here. Uh, for the batter, they must be in the box by the nine-second mark. So they get an additional second as opposed to the American Association. So it seems like the Frontier League is a little bit more batter-friendly uh, than the American Association is. Likewise, where the American Association only allows two pickoffs per at-bat, the Frontier League will only allow two disengagements per at-bat, and the penalty for exceeding that number is a box. So what does a disengagement count as? Well, that would be stepping off the mound, throwing over, things like that. Anything that isn't delivering a pitch to home plate is essentially going to be a disengagement. Uh, so you're only allowed to do two of those per batter. Uh, likewise, like I said, the penalty for exceeding that number is a box. The one thing I will say that I like that the Frontier League did that the American Association at least never announced that they are doing is that there is going to be a grace period in effect for the Frontier League until May 30th. So what does that mean? It means that they will still call out the infractions and the violations, but there will only be a warning issued. There will not be a penalty for the violation until May 30th. So essentially you have two weeks to get used to this and to kind of learn how each umpire is going to be calling each of these things. So I do think that kind of learning period, that grace period, is something I'm a big fan of. I do think the two disengagements is absurdly low. I think that number needs to be four or five to realistically be good. Um, I'd even be fine just kind of capping the number per pitcher as opposed to per batter. So say a pitcher is allowed, I don't know, say... 20 in a game if they're a starter and 10 if they're a reliever something like that i think would be a lot more fair than two disengagements per batter um likewise i think you could have bumped up and made your, your clock comparable to the american association uh just because i think those kind of nickel and dime seconds are going to mean a lot uh in the long run of things uh, overall though it's kind of clear the Frontier League's more batter-friendly. The American Association, for as much as this can be, is more pitcher-friendly. And uh, overall, with the exception of that grace period, I much prefer the American Association's ruling on this as opposed to the Frontier League's. And I think this is just one of those kind of quirky differences between the two leagues. And again, I don't think it's going to be an excessive problem. I think it's going to be the kind of thing that's an issue through May. And then in the case of the Frontier League, because they're not going to start really enforcing this until June, by the end of June, I don't think it'll be that big of an issue anymore. But I do think that adjustment period is going to lead to a lot of guys complaining about it, some fans complaining about it. But in the end, it's just going to be another thing you have to deal with and it really isn't that big of a deal. Well, for one, I totally agree about the grace period. I think that's it was a, it's a forward thinking idea. You know, but as long as I'm, I'm for it, as long as the umpires are legitimately calling out infractions and they're not just like, uh, it's the grace period, we'll let it go. Like, no, don't let it go. Like, but just so players can get used to it and pitchers can get used to it. I, I like that a lot. Um, 
and I, I, I guess I wish that the American Association would do that too. I do. I, I hate the two disengagements. I think, uh, well, in general, I think the American Association is doing, I guess, how I would describe it as kind of standard at this point. Just because, I mean, the American Association isn't exactly reinventing the wheel with these pitch clock rules. This is what's been uh, in play in minor league baseball for the last year or so. So, uh, they're pretty much the exact same rule, and they're they're kind of just doing what everyone else is doing. The Frontier League is taking it a another step, another um like a step, um, a leap further, uh, because of one the less time, two the ball's got to be released instead of starting the pitching motion, and so, uh, and and so that's and the, of course the disengagements that are that we're, we've been referring to. So I think the Frontier League is really, really, really going for for quicker games and trying to be almost a step ahead of everybody else. But to me, I don't like it because when, uh, when like I guess, and I'll, I, I guess I'll keep using the term of the standard uh, as far as pitch clock and those rules like that that the American Association has been using, that's been proven to work. I don't know why you're going away from what you know works and trying to take it a step further. Um, and as far as like releasing the ball, well, that, that annoys me too, because guys have different pitching motions, right? Like why, why, why should a pitcher be penalized for varying deliveries, right? As long as they start the deliveries, I don't really care. Like, like no one's going to be sitting there for like 10 seconds waiting to throw a pitch. I don't think it, I think it's trying to fix a problem that's not there. And so, um, I, I don't like the rule of, the ball has to be released before the time is up, and it's a second less anyway. So it's really like three seconds off, uh, and it's 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 a tough ask, I think, for for pitchers. The grace period's nice, I agree, I think that's cool, but I think I think the frontier league is going a step too far in that sense and trying to deviate and take it one take it one step further. And when the evidence points to the standard really solving the problem, and I don't know why they're trying to fix more of a problem that's not there, and especially messing with like how quick deliveries can be, I think you're going way too far there. Yeah, it does seem like they said, all right, we have a rash of, you know, home invasion. So now if we catch someone and we find them guilty of, you know, burglary, we're just going to lob their head off and that should solve the problem. It's like, well, we don't really need to do that. Jail time would have been sufficient. We didn't need to murder anybody over, you know, home invasion. So I agree with you on that front. And I do think one of the things that immediately uh, came to my mind was just kind of the wording of it. Like you said, having to actually start to throw your pitch is a lot different than just starting your motion. And I feel like the better way to word both of them would have been, you know, maybe making a demonstrative baseball motion or baseball action right i understand it's a little vague but as long as you could justify something as okay what he's doing is something that a pitcher would do what he's doing is something that a batter would do then you could justify that right like obviously starting your windup if you're going to start like maybe rocking back to get ready to throw or if you're starting to pick your leg up or you're starting to make some sort of a motion something that is known by you that has been your motion for some time and let's keep in mind here too a lot of these umpires are going to umpire in these leagues uh for many many years and they're going to see a lot of these guys and so they're going to kind of know like okay like just for example that's nick kennedy on the mound i know he's going to do that little fidget thing with his glove hand and then he's going to start to throw so something like that would be a demonstrative baseball move for him as opposed to somebody else. So I think that may have been a better way to word it. And what I do start to worry about with the Frontier League is if they get overzealous like this, how much time are we actually saving? Right? Like, how much time are we going to save? Exactly. Because... That's that's the point. Yeah. It's... Because now it's like, okay, we got to stop everything, send them down to first if need be, advance the runners if need be, call the strike, then redo everything. So it's like, are we better off you know, enforcing that or not. I feel like the egregious one should be the ones enforced. And then if we're only going to half enforce the rule, what's the point of the rule? So I understand why we have to enforce it to the fullest extent, but I feel like at least to start, it should be some leeway on it. And I think the grace period's good for that, but it does feel like the Frontier League is a bit draconian. So I will agree with you on that, Will. I think they did take it a little too far. And when pitchers are going into their delivery... Like when you when a pitcher starts their delivery, you know what they're not looking at? The clock. 
They're yeah. not looking at the clock. <laughs> they're looking at the catcher's glove and where they're throwing, obviously. So that's why I think just like adding on that the ball has to be released is just unnecessary. And again, I, and I totally agree with what you said, Nick, because it doesn't, it, like, how much time does that cut off deviating from starting a motion to the ball coming out of someone's hand? It, it just adds so many more headaches to a problem that's not there. So I, I think the American Association, I think, did it right for the most part. And I'm not a huge, I think the, I think the Frontier League went too far with this. Yeah, I'd agree. Like I said, I think adding at least another two disengagements, putting the clocks back to what the standard is, and just changing the wording of what counts as, you know, delivering the ball, changing it to just a baseball motion would have been perfectly fine and solved the issue. But, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this works out between those two leagues, certainly. And <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier on in this segment, uh, the Atlantic League should be soon to follow. I'd imagine just about all the leagues are going to have a, a pitch clock of some sort. And it'll be interesting to compare their rules to, to these rules. So, uh, with that said, uh, that's all we really have for this week. So we'll go over to the plugs and then we'll get on uh, with our usual routine for ending the show. And then we will, uh, then we'll see you next week after that. So if you want to follow the show, uh, you could do so on Twitter for as long as it still exists for at Andy Ball Pod. Uh, if you would like to follow Instagram at ALPB underscore news and at, uh, Indie Ball Report there. If you want to find all the past episodes of this show, as well as the show notes, I have links to everything we mentioned here, the awards, the schedule, uh, the, uh, the pitch clock rulings. Uh, that's all going to be on the website, IndieBallReport.com. So be sure to check that out as well there. And if you want to find the show, uh, besides where you're listening now, it's also available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, uh, pretty much all the major uh, pod catchers or podcast platforms the show is available for. So if you're able to, uh, like, rate, review, and especially subscribe so you don't miss any more content as we continue on with the offseason and eventually the 2023 season. So with that said, do we have anything else left to add? Nick, do you believe in the New Jersey Devils yet? No. I know they're 14-3, and three, right? I still don't believe. 11-game heater, as Jack Hughes said. Yeah, so uh, all I'm gathering from this is that they're on a hot streak. I've 11 seen games. Teams. Yeah, the Flyers won 10 and missed the postseason. So... Not saying so. I'm just saying. Uh, I'll be, I'll put it like this: if they're keeping this up into the new year, then I'll believe in them. But until then, I don't. Let's, you mean like keep it up as in like first in the metro? Yeah, like if they keep that up, that's a tough bar. I mean, it shouldn't be if they're as good as they say they are. If they're truly a three-loss team, then they should be able to keep up with that. I mean, how many points do they have on Carolina? I think like two or three. Okay. I mean, I mean Carolina's excellent. I mean they're really good, but I think I think I think it's pretty close still, like two or three. Yeah, so then everybody in the division's pretty close. Yes, but I'm so. not really thinking in terms of like seeding or whatever. Like as long as they you know, make the playoffs and they're a good team, that's all I really care about at this point, to be honest with you. Like uh or actually it's actually they're six uh six points ahead of Carolina. All right. So, like I said, if they're at this point on January 1st, then I'll believe in them. If they are still, you know, within, I'll even be generous. If they're within five points of first place in the Metro, I'll believe in them. If they're not, then I will view them as, you know, a team that got hot and is probably going to be playing a lot of road playoff games to none playoff games. I just want to, I also just want to bring up Nick, but while we're, while we're on the hockey point quickly, but Hmm. as of right now, and, I know it's easy to say, like, well, as, as the season ended today, and 17 games in, but it, the four playoff teams out of the Metro, Devils, Carolina, Islanders, Rangers, yeah. I mean, how much fun would that be? It'd be a lot less fun than I want it to be. I would very much like it to not be two of the three tri-state teams, and preferably the only, like, real New York team, you know, the one that plays in Manhattan is the only 
team make the postseason out of the Metro from the Tri-State. That, that's what I prefer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, I mean, or, or, or are you saying that because you can't beat the Islanders and you can't beat Semyon Varlamov? Not a lot of people can beat the Islanders. The Islanders are like four for their last 11, so, or nine for their last 11. So, you know, I'm you know not... Who did be, you know who is included in that and beating them, though? The New Jersey Devils. That's fantastic. Uh, that that's really fantastic. I'm more taken away from the fact that the Rangers are playing bad hockey and they're still two points out of second place in the Metro despite having like 27th in the league in shooting percentage. That's what I'm choosing to take away from this. Okay. So. That's looking at it in a positive way, I respect it. Yeah. I think the problem is we got better defensively and Igor's not used to only facing like 25 shots a night. He's used to facing 45. So... <laughs> The key is to get shittier on defense, and then we'll be better overall. Yeah, he gets too bored. Honestly, though, if you ask goalies, they're going to generally say, I'd rather have more than less shots, so that way I'm engaged and I get into a rhythm. Yeah, I mean, but not to a crazy extent. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that Duke football is going to a bowl game, and I'm excited about that. And I'm waiting until December 4th to figure out where they're playing so that way I know where I'm buying tickets to. And I'm hoping it's the Pinstripe Bowl so that way I don't have to travel far. But with my luck, it'll be like the Sun Bowl. And I'll be like, oh, I ain't going to El Paso. Hell, I'm not going to Texas, period. Uh, who, who would go to El Paso? I don't what what is it, down in El Paso? I don't even know what's there. Frito-Lays. The that's about it. Yeah, El Paso and El Paso would not be a fun... I really hope you don't get that. I mean, Fe- Fenway. Wait, no. What is Fenway? Is that American Athletic ACC or is yep, that? Yep. That is okay. Yeah. So I mean, that's possible. Like the two I'm rooting for are Fenway and Pinstripe because Pinstripe's a day trip. That's not a problem. Fenway. Yeah. That would be. I go out for the week and I stay with my friend that lives in. I think it's. I think he's technically in Brighton, but he may be Boston. It, it's one of those. That's not far. Yeah. yeah it's it's six of one. It basically be okay. I get on an Amtrak. I go up to Boston, and then once I get in, I text him. Be like, "Yo, dude, where? What's your address?" So I could tell the Uber where I'm going to. Yeah. Have you ever? Have you ever been to Fenway? I have never been to Boston. Ever. No. It's a fun place. Yeah, no, the most New Englanding I've done was Manchester, New Hampshire, and then uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Providence is a cool city, though. Yeah, no, I like Providence. That and Pawtucket was surprisingly nice too. Yeah, I don't I, see. I never actually went to McCoy when the Paw Sox were still there. I haven't been to the new ballpark though in Worcester, and it's great. It's yeah, awesome. I wanted to go to McCoy, but the problem was when we went up there because me and a friend went up uh, to see some other friends that we have since high school. Uh, because one went to Providence, one went to Brown. So we've said, oh, we'll go up for a weekend and, you know, we'll spend all the time doing stuff up there. So we went up for a long weekend and obviously it was like October. So there wasn't anything going on there. So instead we just kind of, yeah. So it was, uh, that's the most New Englanding I've done. So on one hand, I kind of wanted to be Boston, but at the same time, I would rather not have to pay like 120 bucks for an Amtrak ticket. Uh, so yeah, that's fair. So I'd much rather just pay like, However much it would be for me to just take the train into New York and then uh, take the subway over to uh, Yankee Stadium, which also is another place I've never been to. Yankee Stadium? No, nah, I've never been. It's not that great. Yeah. I think it's okay. Old it's one and new job. one, never been. Yeah, it's not that great. Oh, one more thing I wanted to bring up to Nick. Yeah. Uh, World Cup starting this week. I don't know anything about soccer. Uh, you a big World Cup, World Cup guy at all? Not really. I care when Italy's there, and I root for Italy, and that's about it. And seeing as somehow apparently they won Euro Cup, but didn't make the World Cup, uh, I really don't care. There's exactly one game in the World Cup I do care about, and that is the 29th, and that is U.S. versus Iran. I don't know why. <laughs> I just really want to watch U.S. The US versus who? Iran. Oh, Iran. Oh, Iran. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Why? <laughs> It's a rematch of the hostage crisis. So we, we got to win this one. We got to win this one. You don't care about Wales. You don't care about... What about a rematch of the Revolutionary War? 
I know we're going to lose to England, and I assume we're going to lose to Wales. Iran's a very winnable match. In fact, if we don't beat Iran, I have some serious questions about USA soccer. And quite frankly, I say stop paying them. They don't win. They don't deserve to be paid for this. I, I don't know enough about that. Like, literally, like, I'll just watch, like, for fun. Like, I'll just watch the U.S. and, like, cheer when they win. And if they lose, I'll go on with my day. So. Yeah. It's soccer at the end of the day. I mean, that's the general American sentiment. It's soccer. When they do well, great. When they don't, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, I want them to do well. But, like, I don't. I just don't know enough. Exactly. I know Pulisic, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm thinking we're going to cut this here. Because, uh. I ran out of water, and I'm kind of dying here, and I'm amazed we got over an hour, despite both of us dying. That's the dedication we have for this show, is that we kept pushing on. Just so, gotten it through. Exactly. So, uh, we will see you guys next week, maybe with a guest, maybe not. Probably not, because next week's Thanksgiving week, so it's going to be hard to schedule anything here. So, you know, we'll see where it goes from there, but until next time, don't forget to play ball. <laughs>